The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 25 begins with the unwelcome appearance of Barak Ironskin at the doors to the throne room. He manages to get everyone's full attention when he throws the severed head of a Nellian Glimmerax upon the steps. The Elder Dwarf definitely seems intent on further violence. A heated exchange takes place between Kleneth and Barok, in which Barok explains his plan to murder everyone present and then blame the atrocity on the human visitors. He'll further claim that the death of a Nellian was the unfortunate result of Umura's magic. The dwarf, Balifer, who is not associated with the Ironskin family, will provide testimony that reasonably backs up these claims. Finally, Barak will kill the quote-unquote treacherous human interlopers and accept the credit for defending Dwarvar. In this exchange, Kleneth makes reference to a place called Black Nail's Vault, and we later learn in the episode that Barak hopes to find an artifact, a horn, within it. Kleneth also worries that Barok's sacrilegious actions might draw the ire of their god, Gruenmog, and indeed, shortly after she voices these concerns, it does seem as though Barok has the deity's attention. Kleneth cannot do much, but she does what she can. She presses a hidden button that opens a secret door to an escape tunnel and commands Harl to take her great-granddaughter away to safety. The guards at the door try their best to keep Barok out, but they only manage to slow him down. Before long, he throws open the doors and strides in with his family to carry out the coup. But by then, Harl, Ursuleth, and the others are already on their way to safety. Imagine, if you will, a blank sheet of paper. Now, on that page, imagine a compass that points north, south, east, and west. We'll put this imaginary compass in a corner now to reference later when we need it. Next, imagine that this piece of paper is bisected twice by imaginary lines running from corner to corner so that they fill the page with an X shape. This gives us four quadrants on which to begin our map of this part of the imaginary world of Merith. We really don't need a lot of detail on this map, but I do feel that now is the time to start talking about physical geography again on the show. I'll explain why in just a few minutes. Okay, let's fill in those quadrants. The westernmost quadrant of our map will be dominated by the Kingswood. This is where our adventure began. 
In it, you'd find the tower ruins, and beneath that, Raffenfell's old laboratory. You'd also find a river and a cavern complex that a tribe of 30 ill-fated goblins and two direwolves had once called home. The northern quadrant of our imaginary map is not quite as uniform, but more or less, it's defined by a few human settlements on the outskirts of the main city of Silmoral. Silmoral, by the way, is beyond the top edge of our piece of paper and out of our concern for now. Anyway, the main features of these outskirts include the township of Brannan, where Maynard Magari presides, a probably abandoned thieves' hideout where Aradine cut her teeth learning rogue craft, a ruined church of Sadal, god of the sun, where Swin and Aradine exchanged Magari's dead brother for a chest of gold, and finally, Wolfcliff Keep, a major military installation where we would find a fighting man by the name of Fenwick Modrin in command. The eastern quadrant of our map has so far not featured prominently in our tale, but in it you would find Briar Hill, the hometown of Kagan, the recently deceased fighter. You would also find a small and a large lake, and the medium-sized town of Wilmington, which serves as the gateway to the kingdom of Zaysha, from where Umura hails. At the point of intersection of our crisscrossing lines, more or less, is the township of Burke, connected to Brannan and then Silmoral by the south road. In Burke, we find the likes of Sheriff Marlock, Captain Tor, Riley the Roach, Lord Skelling, and a certain scheming wizard with a deep and abiding interest in mind control. Our map is now almost complete as we need it to be. There is just one quadrant left to consider. The triangle that fills the southern portion of our map is where the Skundrumwar, the Windless Rise, is located as a part of a massive mountain range that bisects the continent west to east. We need to figure out this part of our map today because, simply put, our characters are about to walk off the southern edge of it. Our player characters have the goal of delivering Ursuleth to safety in the Arleguar, but where exactly is that? How far away is it from their present location? Would they be best off to travel through the mountain range, or should they cut across it, leaving the range to find easier terrain? I think it's safe to assume that Harl, and Ursuleth as well, would have some knowledge of these lands. Neither dwarf would be able to tell you exactly how far the Arleguar was from their current location, nor could they tell you how long the trip would be. They could certainly make some educated guesses, however. I've created a second map that I'll post on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com if you're interested, but all we really need to know is that the Arleguar is about 200 miles to the east, and that nothing but mountains lies in the way. If they try to navigate this difficult terrain, their movement would be at a crawl, and the trip would take anywhere between 20 and 40 days. The other option is to head for easier terrain, this requires making a detour, but could save them time overall, as they'll be able to travel faster. Given the information that Harl and Ursuleth can remember from maps they've seen, it's not immediately clear which choice is the wiser of the two. Still, they need to make a decision, and the sooner the better. Chapter 26, Part 1 Day 26, Morning Elevation, 9,000 feet above sea level Party status The three humans of the party are suffering from the effects of exhaustion and will take a minus one to any combat-related roles Harl, 16 of 16 hit points Eridine, 8 of 8 Gyrios, 21 of 21 Umura 13 of 13. Ursuleth, 4 of 4. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield. 
Harl squinted into the shining east. The mountain range stretched away for miles and miles and miles. They were in the middle of a vast ocean of massive rocky slabs, towering peaks interrupted by plunging valleys, darkened passes, and treacherous saddles. They'd not traveled far from Dwarvar the night before, not far at all. Even with the two dwarves leading the way, it had not been possible to do so safely in the dark, and so they had decided to go a safe distance away and then stop to hide. Harl had tried to choose a path that was relatively safe, but also not too obvious, for he knew that if enemies were behind them, they would not be far behind. He also knew that if they were caught, there could only be one outcome. He looked over at the sleeping form of Ursuleth to his right. Her breast rose and fell steadily. Harl wondered what she might be dreaming of. Dwarvar was much too close for comfort. They'd probably covered fewer than four miles in their nighttime flight and were still in the highlands. Soon, he would wake the others, and they would make the surreal trip through the cloud line, breaking that strange threshold that had always felt, and still felt, like passing through the lands of the dead. Once they put the clouds above them, the enemy's line of sight would be broken, and their chance to escape would be much, much better. Harl looked to the horizon. The further away they were, the more the mountains seemed to fade away, becoming ghostly shapes that eventually became indistinguishable from the sky. The Arleguar. It was so very far away. Of course, there were no actual paths leading there. They would have to navigate extremely difficult and dangerous terrain, with neither guide nor map. Harl had never even been to the Arleguar before. He had a vague idea of where it was from maps he'd seen, but that was all he had. A vague idea. He continued gazing into the distance and sighed heavily. Mountains, to the very edge of his vision. The old dwarves had named this part of Merith the Isengrunmug, roughly translated, Grunmug's Gift. In recent centuries, it was more often called, the less formal, Kazmirioth, the River of Iron. Close by, one of the party stirred and woke. It was Eridine. The young woman rubbed her eyes and fumbled in her pack for her water skin. She coughed up the first sip, but she managed to get some down on her second attempt. The front of her injured neck showed a thick band of dark purple edged with yellow. She coughed several times into the crook of her elbow and then looked up, noticing Harl, already awake and watching her. She favored him with a sleepy smile, and Harl weakly attempted one in return. Herodine looked past Harl in the direction of Dwarvar and raised her eyebrows. Harl guessed her question. Yes, sure as stone. They'll be looking for us, he said. Eredin nodded. Sure. Harl caught himself and clucked his tongue. Sorry, it's hard to get used to your real name. I still want to call you Sheris. Eredin smiled again and replaced the water skin in her pack. So, um, Kagan told me before... Harl's lower lip trembled for just an instant. K Kagan told me that when they had you at the gallows, he, he said they gave you a chance for a painless death if you agreed to confess your crimes. As he said the word painless, Harl could not help but stare at the mark on Eredin's neck. Kagan said that you refused to do it. Eredin just looked at Harl. The look she wore was just inscrutable. Do you realize that your honor saved your life? Eredin squinted at Harl to show that she wasn't quite sure what he was getting at. I mean, if you had opted for an easy death and betrayed your own code of right and wrong, well, you would have died 
Erdin. Erdin stared at him blankly. By the same token, if that nobleman had offered mercy, the result would have been the same. Your insistence on the truth and his cruel desire to see you suffer are the reasons you're still alive. It's most ironical. There was a moment when neither of them said anything. Then Eredin got up and silently came over to embrace the dwarf. And because of you, she whispered. The sound of her movement must have woken the others. Slowly, one by one, they roused, yawning and stretching. Gyrios looked at the rising sun. There were dark circles under his eyes. I must do my prayers, he said. It will have to wait a little, priest, objected Harl. We need to put a few more miles between us and Dwervar, and then we can stop. Harl did not feel comfortable issuing commands, but he continued nonetheless. Everyone get your things. We're going. Hi everybody, we're Waffles Maple Syrup and we play Pathfinder 2E and all sorts of different TTRPGs. You're about to listen to our time travel homebrew campaign called Time Has Passed. Check it out! Doldren just comes charging up this way towards where uh, L ran off to and sees that rune still there and Tanigal attacking uh, L and be like, I said the rune! As he just mm. turns charges at it and I again just jumps, leaps, and swings with them all. Why would anybody want to be a human? That's stupid. If... Most people don't get a choice. I mean, but we did. <laughs> 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 hey! oh my God. Wow. So, That's a lot of damage. I have no weapons aside from my body. Oh dear. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> uh, oh my. You see this humanoid shape enclosed in a white robe form in the void of your dreams. As we zoom into where his face should be, there is nothing but blackness. The blackness that leaks from his hood begins to enshroud your mind, wrapping around you in this space. I need all of you to make a will saving throw. And if you like what you just heard, search Waffles Maple Syrup, one word, and give us a subscribe. Thanks! As they walk, Harl shares his cautiously optimistic belief that they may have lucked into getting a solid head start. His reasoning is as follows. First, and most obviously, they were unmolested during the night. To Harl, this indicates that Barok expects the three humans and a pair of shameful pillow dwarves to make for human lands. In fact, given what Barok would know and from his perspective, the only logical course of action would be for them to head for the protection of Burke. Of course, the old dwarf could not know that they were unwelcome there, so he would have concentrated his efforts on running them down in that direction. Lucky for them, they were heading the opposite way. Hal pointed out that they needed to decide whether to attempt to pass through the difficult mountain terrain in a straight line, or to take a longer, but potentially faster, more circuitous route along the edge of the mountain range. It seemed that, at least for now, and among the five of them, Hal was in the best position to make this decision. Distance and speed, he explained, were not the only factors to consider. Their water skins were only about half full, and they only had three of them, 
This worried Harl, as it was an urgent problem. A full water skin, used sparingly, can support a single person for two days. Pooling and conserving their resources, they'll still run out in just over one day. It is fortunate, says Gyrios, that they all had something to drink moments before leaving the High Forge. Considering that they could only survive without water for three days, the right move seemed fairly clear. Water would be easier to find if they exited the mountain range. However, if thirst didn't kill them, there was always hunger to worry about. Hunger wasn't as pressing a problem, but it was still a problem. They had next to nothing remaining of their dried rations. In fact, their only food was the kid Harl had slaughtered, and it would not last long. After two, three days at most, it would begin to rot. The situation looked pretty grim. Still, the best choice did indeed seem obvious. If they remained in the highlands, they would be in serious trouble. Mountainous terrain did not support much in the way of edible flora, much less fauna, and water was scarce. They would make for the lowlands, heading for wherever they could see the most green. Wherever they found greenery, they would find water. Where they found water, they might find game. If they were very lucky, within the next three days, they would happen upon a spring, a pond, or a stream. That was about all Harl knew in the ways of survival. Oh, if only Kagan were there to guide them. This was a thought Harl would have over and over again as they crawled, climbed, and marched to the south. In terms of other equipment they might find useful along the way, they had Kagan's hand axe, Aradine's rope, and Umora's tinderbox, lamp, and oil. I'll post an updated inventory over at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. It's worth mentioning that Harl's traveling pack has been left behind. He would not have brought it to the dinner. Ursuleth had nothing at all, save for the clothes on her back. Early on, she was given Gyrios' old shield to carry, and she'd complained right away, saying she didn't know how to use it and that it was cumbersome and heavy. But Harl had insisted, mostly because he had not wanted to leave any evidence of their passage behind, if it could be helped. The party might hope to randomly stumble across water or something edible. It's possible, but highly unlikely in this terrain. Other than what might occur as a result of a wandering monster check, I'll add a stumble upon roll. On a 20, they'll find something to eat or drink. To balance it out, on a 1, something unfortunate will occur. I'll figure out what that might be if it ever happens. Chapter 26, Part 2, Day 25, Night. A baleful moaning wind entered the room. It came through the escape tunnel, flapping the heavy tapestry and making the three heroes depicted on it billow and deflate as though breathing. The sound did not belong here in the windless rise. The tremors in the room had subsided some time ago, and now Barok idly stroked the cool marble arms of the throne in which he sat. The old warrior had been sitting here for hours, staring at nothing, lost in contemplation. The fiery rage that had blazed in his blood had cooled, turned cold, actually. But it felt good. It felt profound. Dwervar was his. The Pigeon Lord was dead at his feet, as were most of her closest and strongest allies. All but a few, and they were of no import. He had spared the cripple. The mutilated dwarf had laughed like a delighted child as the blades rose and fell around him, and Barak had found it amusing. At some point in the battle, 
If it could be called a battle, the lights had dimmed to nothing, and they had completed the butchery in the grayscale world of dark vision. The scene all around him was colorless and grim. The tapestry portraying the shield and anvil of the Stonecarver clan had been yanked down and now laid in a crumpled gray pile. The dinner table had been split down the middle and upended, its carved wooden legs stuck straight up in the air, comically, like the legs of dead birds. Bodies were everywhere, so mutilated that Barak could not tell where one corpse ended and another began. It was carnage, and the blood. It covered the steps down to the double doors like a carpet runner. But how strange it was to feel so cold. Normally, after a battle, he felt exhilarated, flushed with adrenaline, and he radiated an inner glow. But now he only felt cold, like a hot piece of iron plunged into a bucket of icy water. Beric did not yet notice it, but his breathing had slowed to something like half its normal rate. Likewise, his heartbeat was not only slow, but very, very faint. The corpses in the room had already begun to produce a sickly sweet odor, but the old dwarf didn't even notice. Barok heard footsteps approaching and looked up to the doors where, momentarily, the face of his son, Halmir, appeared. Halmir was tall and broad for a dwarf. His face was mean and bluff. He had small black eyes under a beetle brow and a nose like an old potato. Halmir sniffed the air and frowned. If they fled toward Burke, they are gone. But I do not think that they went that way. Barok only lifted an eyebrow, the one above his scarred and useless eye, in response. Our supporters in the foothills saw nothing. Someone would have seen three humans and a pair of well-known dwarves pass through the town. Tell me, Halmir, my son, said Barok in a tone that seemed uncharacteristically reflective. Do you feel it as I do? Can you sense it? Like a coldness? in your very soul. The look crossed Barok's face that Halmir had never seen before and could not interpret. Behind the old dwarf, the huge marble skull, the twin of the one in the shrine to Grunmog, leered at him. I can feel it. I can feel the shadow across my heart. Not knowing how to respond to this, Halmir continued his report. We searched the road in between, there are no good places to hide, and none either by which to leave the road. As I say, I do not believe they fled that way. Has young Anatar returned? After the business in the throne room was finished, Beric had sent Halmir along with a few other warriors to cut off the escapees before they could get to the road leading to the foothills and then to Burke beyond. Thinking their quarry had beaten them to the road they had pursued in that direction, Halmir's orders were to kill everyone. Meanwhile, Anatar had been trying and failing to get through the curiously unyielding secret door before Barak had pushed him out of the way and kicked it open with enough force to send bricks clattering to the floor. Anatar was given five good dwarves and ordered to give chase. He had not yet returned. Between the lines. I'm no expert on the history of Dungeons and Dragons, but I know a little bit. 
Gygax and Arneson created the game back in the 70s as a way of moving the focus away from group battles in their tabletop games to individual ones. The early D&D game was meant to be a game of characters delving underground and exploring dungeons. Thus, the basic rules dealt primarily with the so-called dungeon crawl. As the game grew in popularity and in scope, players found that they wanted to unearth their characters and take them on adventures into the wild. So Gygax and Arneson created a new set of rules to facilitate this, and they combined these rules with others concerning advancement to mid-level. These were called the expert rules. That'll do it for the history lesson. I bring this up because even though my characters are not yet at mid-level, they're certainly on the verge of a new style of gameplay that will necessitate much more time spent above ground and out of doors. I've always liked the BX rules for their lightness and their tendency to relegate many specific rules to good judgment. I still think this style of game is well suited to the audio format of a podcast, and so I'll be using some rules and some variations on rules going forward whenever my story goes into overland mode. The way I see it, in addition to the stumble upon roll mentioned earlier, there are three mechanics I need to hammer out right away. Everything else can wait. So let's get into it. First, I need a system of generating random weather. I'll continue using the one I used briefly back in chapter 22. It's simple and it works. I'll roll a die 20. The higher the number, the better the weather. These results will be used for more than just narrative flavor, by the way. Bad weather could make travel happen more slowly. It could prevent movement altogether and the length of time it takes to get from A to B will influence many life and death outcomes. Second, speaking of things that affect travel time, the expert rules have an entry on getting lost. It's a more complicated mechanic than I think would work in a podcast, so I'm going to overrule it and use something simpler. I think, considering all factors, that Harl would be able to successfully lead the party in the generally correct direction, eventually. The only question is if he gets them there expediently. For each leg of their trip, then, I'll roll to see how long it will take. A poor roll will indicate several wrong turns, perhaps even getting lost or being forced to double back. I'll read a high roll as Harl having made few errors in his pathfinding efforts. Thirdly, I need to make the right decision about wandering encounters. The expert rules suggest checking daily and nightly for an encounter, and that for a trek through the mountains, an encounter should occur on a roll of four to six on a die six. This strikes me as strange and inappropriate for our story. I would have thought mountain treks would contain fewer encounters, not more, seeing as most rocky peaks are not exactly bursting with life. Furthermore, most encounter listings for mountain terrain grossly overrepresent very high-level adversaries like giants and dragons. I'm going to have to make my own rules for this, too. I'll stick with one check per day, as I have in the past. An encounter will occur on a six, rolled on a six-sided die. If an encounter is indicated, I'll roll a 50% chance for whether it's a day or a night encounter. This decision is based on what I feel seems most realistic, yes, but mostly it's based on what I think would make for a good story. The only other thing I'll mention here is that I'll be making a custom table for encounters, and, as always, I'll post it on the blog, and then my list will include things other than creatures. It'll include interesting natural features, buildings, and other, I hope, interesting plot drivers. Thanks for staying with me while I sorted out these rules. Everything else can wait. We'll deal with other mechanics, if and when we need them. I guess it's time to put these rules into play and roll some dice. Let's see, I'll need at least a die 20 and a die 6 to start. There are three rolls to make. One for weather, one for stumble upon, and one for random encounters. For weather, it's a simple d20 roll. Here goes. I've gotten a 9. Next up is the stumble upon roll. Another 9, so that means there's no result there. Finally, there's the d6 roll for a wandering encounter. A four. 
Day one will pass without incident. But hang on. How many days will the first leg of their journey take? Looking at my map, I think that three to five days is about right to reach the foothills. So I'll roll on a die six and ignore numbers outside this range to determine Harl's success in pathfinding. Here's the roll. It's a three. There's some badly needed good fortune. Perhaps it makes sense that Harl should know the lands closest to home quite well. Or perhaps Grunmog was smiling upon them. Who can say? You never really know what the dice will decide. Now, let's end on a truly high note. I've saved the best part for last. Some of you might have guessed it already. Today, Eridian achieves level three. Just think of all the things this brave woman has been through. Nobody deserves it more. Let's see what kind of improvements we can make to her character sheet. Most of her thieves' skills will improve by 5%, but there is one skill that takes a significant jump. We know that Eridine has superior eyesight and hearing, and the latter has just grown keener. Her chance to hear noise goes from a 2 in 6 chance to a 3 in 6 chance. That's more than a 15% improvement. In addition to her skill bonuses, Eridine gets to roll for new hit points. She doesn't have a constitution bonus, but I'll allow her to min out at half. Back in episode 23, when I rolled for Umora's new hit points, I decided not to round up a roll of 1 or 2 to a 3. I didn't mention it on the show, but I probably should have. It seems to me that for classes that get a d4 for new hit points, like magic users and rogues, classes that are meant to have fairly low hit points, rounding up the min out would defeat the purpose. So for those classes, or creatures who get just 1 to 4 hit points, I will min out at 2, not a 3, and round down. Sorry, Herodine, I love you, but this is my ruling. Now, let's roll some dice. Rolling a one die four for new hit points. A four, fantastic, good luck. This takes Herodine's hit points from eight to 12. Well, that could really not have gone better. Don't you love it when that happens? Finally, let's roll for stat improvement. A six on a d6 indicates an increase of one point. Strength. A six. Swinging that short sword around has conditioned her arm. Wonderful. These dice are hot. Intelligence. A one. Nothing there. Wisdom. Another one. Nope. Dexterity. It would be nice to see a six here. A four. Oh, better, but not good. Constitution. A two. That's nothing. Charisma. Another one. Ah, it seems my dice have cooled off. Still, one increase out of six, plus max hit points? I'll take it. Congratulations, Eridine. Already a vital part of this team, your strength will be needed more than ever in the coming episodes. I wonder, what will befall the party in their upcoming adventures? Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to lend your support, please consider spreading the word on social media or leaving a review on the podcatcher of your choice. My gratitude to everyone who has left a review so far. The show is growing, and these reviews really do help a great deal. I like to read one at the end of every episode. This one is by C.R. Bernard. This is a great actual play tabletop RPG podcast with strong storytelling elements and really outstanding sound design. Can't wait to see where the creative gamers take the story. Thank you so much, C.R. Bernard. I have a lot of fun with the sound design. It's one of my favorite parts of the creative process. Thanks is also due to those who have lent their voice to this episode. Providing the mighty voice of Barak Ironskin is the one and only Austin Moraga of the Ironbound Chest. Playing his son, Halmir Ironskin, is a new voice to the show. Jeff Hessel of the cast Perilous, 
an always excellent actual play set in Gavin Norman's Dolmenwood. Thank you very much, Austin and Jeff. You can find me on Twitter at Manticore Tale and on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. You can also reach me by email. My address is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also maintain a blog, taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post show notes, maps, art, character sheets, random musings, and other errata. Some original music from the show is available and free to use on YouTube, too. The adventure will continue next time on Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. We're going to give it another go. It's a bit more, a, a bit more zing, a bit of zing. A bit zing. of zing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ready? Hello. 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 With a hello. No, no, no. Hello. 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 <laughs> wait, wait till I get through the whole thing. Ready? Wait till. Hello. With a billowing hilltop. Hello. Hello. Oh, dear. <laughs> wait till you get through the whole thing. No, no, I mean. I, I thought that was the whole thing. The whole thing is hello <laughs> with a billowing hilltop. Okay. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That was right. <laughs> Uh, that pretty much sums up the show. But if you want to find out any more, you can visit us at www.blowinghilltop.com. Does anybody know? .org. Is it? It's .com. What do we do? What do we, what do we play? There's monsters. Um, does and anybody remember? Walking around. We don't know. And, yeah. And we will be delighted if you to join us around our table as we play Dungeon. Is it 5th edition? Hello? Yeah, we think so. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We what play Dungeons and Dragons. Sorry, that was me. I what was that noise in the background? There will be noises in the background as we play Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition through the classic Paizo adventure path, The Age of Worms. You can expect this. Oh! Quite a bit of this. Um, I'm completely lost. This. Blech. This. I've got a bugbear in my underpants. And one of these. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> we're on Apple Podcasts and we're on Spotify and we're on TuneIn and you can find us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Uh, and we uh, hope you join us. Thanks very much. Thank you.